following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 21 of our Mort D'Arthur class. We are hurtling towards, uh, uh, hurtling, dashing, little traversing and tracing going on, but we are heading our way towards the end of this book. Not perhaps super rapidly, but um, I've been, uh, uh, I've been, uh, what have I been doing? Bunches of things. <laughs> I've, I've been, I've, I did remember, by the way, finally this week uh, to uh, uh, do the reading assignments for the next section. In fact, through the end of the, um, um, through the end of, of the the long book of Sir Tristram uh, and before, and then we're going to get to the Holy Grail. And actually, the bits at the end, which I've been saying are really the best bits in all of Mallory, are uh, also kind of uh, comparatively short, really. Um, uh, so he gets more concise as he uh, uh, gets better as well. Um Anyway, yeah. Oh, Karina, I agree. This book is so much fun to do recaps of. Uh, so yes, if you have a, a loved one in your household who is not reading this book and you are summarizing what happened, it, that's always, uh, uh, that is, that is always fun. Always fun. Um, yeah. So anyway, okay. Um, we are, uh, uh, we are headed back here with Sir Tristram and Sir Lamarack and a whole bunch of people. Uh, but actually tonight... Tonight, I am setting out to do something intrepid. I am planning on covering about twice as many pages of text tonight as on any other single class session we have done so far. Um, this seemed like a, a reasonably good uh, uh, patch to kind of speed up a bit through because it's sort of scattered all over the place even more than usual lots of fun little adventures some of which seem almost completely disconnected from everything else like the random adventures of sir the random adventure singularly of sir dinas the senesco of cornwall right who's like girlfriend and Bratchets get stolen and he goes back to recover his girlfriend and Bratchets at the end. Um, for instance, as an example of like a, a thing that Mallory just threw in there, which is anyway. Um, yeah. So we'll, uh, uh, we'll see. Um, <laughs> uh, Stephen, no, my copy does not have a bunch of blank pages. It's all good. We're going to cover so much stuff. It's going to be great. So, um, but first, before we do a couple quick announcements, uh, the first thing I wanted to remind you of is that tomorrow is the day of, uh, the last Mythgard movie club of the year. This is, uh, the discussion of the crimes of Grindelwald, the new, uh, Harry Potter genre film, uh, that, uh, uh, is, has been out now for a while. Um, uh, a really fun kind of return to the roots of the Mythgard movie club. That was the first thing that they, uh, the, the original uh, Fantastic Beasts uh, was uh, the first thing that they discussed. So uh, uh, it's going to be fun for them to return to that. 
uh, here this December. Yeah, December. That's totally the month that it is right now. Uh, so yeah, so they're going to be doing that tomorrow evening at uh, 8.30, I believe. But you can check for details uh, and the registration link and stuff uh, on the Signum University homepage. Go to Signum University and scroll down a bit and you will see the Mythgard Movie Club uh, uh, image right there for you to click on uh, and go through. So anyway, uh, so that's going to be fun. And then the other thing that is going to be fun, which is significantly further down the road, is Texmoot. Texmoot is our next regional moot that is coming up, uh, starting to approach now. It's almost a month away. Uh, January, Saturday, January 17th is the date of it. Uh, I've been getting registrations just pouring in for Texmoot. Uh, Texmoot is looking like it is going to be, again, our biggest regional moot of the year uh, for as far as attendance is concerned. Uh, so uh, come join us because the uh, uh, tickets are selling like hotcakes to Texmoot. Um, it's going to be a really fun look. Uh, the theme of that, uh, of, of, of Texmoot this year, uh, is essentially like the modern uh, oral culture. Look at, uh, uh, look at audio uh, productions and consuming things, both books and uh, podcasts and things like that uh, in, uh, in, in audio stuff. I'm going to be on a panel with some other podcasts and, uh, and readers and things to, to sort of talk about um, you know, the whole, uh, audio, uh, thing. Anyway, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm hoping to get to see some of the, you there, Deborah, looking forward to meeting you there and, uh, uh, seeing some other folks. I got to meet a bunch of people last year at TexMoot. So, um, I hope you will, uh, uh, if you're anywhere, uh, if you can get to Waco, uh, which is where it's going to be, uh, on, in the, on the 17th of January, that you can come join us, uh, there. So, all right. And those are my announcements for today. So let's jump right in. Because I finished my slides last week. I totally did. Like every single one of them. So we're starting with a brand new slide today. Um, you may remember we left poor Tristram sick in prison and with uh, Mallory, the narrator, uh, somewhat um, uh, uh, being going out of his way to be sympathetic, right? And, um, uh, and making... Um, making some commentary upon how sickness is really the worst thing you can, you can, you can handle all kinds of other things, right? You, you, you can endure if you're a prisoner, but boy, if you get sick, it's tough, right? And, uh, he does seem to be speaking from personal experience there. And we had Tristram as the object of our pity there at the end of, uh, uh, last week's reading. Um, uh, there even Sir Palamides was, um, feeling sympathetic for him, right? Um, this is his reconciliation. So you remember I was saying that it wasn't clear initially uh, what uh, Sir Daris, his captor, what his captor's endgame was, right? He, he took him, you know, he found out that Sir Tristram was the knight who killed three of his five sons uh, at the Tournament of the Castle of Maidens. And uh, then he... Um, uh, so he found out that the guy that was harboring under his roof was the slayer of his son, so he took him prisoner. Um, and his kin came to visit, and they all wanted to, to slay him, right, to slay Tristram. But uh, his host and prisoner and, you know, or, you know prison guard um, uh, says, no, 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 don't kill him. Uh, and I was saying it it's sort of wasn't clear what this was building up to, right? So we start with what this was building up to. Sir Knigt. May repentis of your sickness, for ye are called a full noble knight, and so it seemeth by you. 
and wit you well that here shall never be side that I, Sir Darras, shall destroy a noble, such a noble knight as ye are in, per, in present, howbeit that ye have slain three of my sonnes, wherefore I was greatly aggrieved. But now shalt thou go and thy fellowers, and tuck your horse and your armour, for they have been fire and clean capped. And ye shall go where it liketh you upon this covenant, that ye, knicked, will promise me to be good friend to my sonnes twa that been now on life, and also that ye tell me thy name. Sir, as for me, my name is Sir Tristram de Leonesse, and in Cornwall was I born, and nephew I am unto King Mark. And as for the death of your twelve sonnes, uh, we seem to have lost count of the number of sonnes this dude had. Uh, it was five before and three dead. Tristram is either Tristram's making a mistake or Mallory is here. I'm not sure uh, who, who's uh, failed to count the noses. Uh, anyway, but anyway, here we go. Sorry. Uh, and as for the death of your twelve or perhaps three sonnes, I meek not do withal. For an they had been the next kin that I have, I meek to have done none otherwise. And if I had slain him by treason or their treachery, I had been worthy to have died. All this I consider, sighed Sir Darras, and all that ye did was by force of knighthood, and that was the cause I would not put you to death. But sith ye be Sir Tristram the good knight, I pray you heartily to be good friend unto my sonnes. Sir, said Sir Tristram, I promise you by the faith of my body, ever while I will do you service, for ye have done us but as a natural knight ought to do. All right, so um, <laughs> are you suggesting what what uh, Sir Darius has has uh, what one d four plus one sons? Anyway, sorry. Okay, uh, so. Notice how understanding everybody is. There are a few things here that I think are important to notice. First of all, notice how Sir Darius is essentially contextualizing not only his release of Tristram, but his imprisonment of Tristram, right? He's saying, I locked you in prison, right, because I was greatly aggrieved, right? Um, you know, that, that his first reaction to the news of his son's deaths uh, was great grief. And so he was passionate in his grief, and in his passion uh, he took Tristram captive. But notice, not only does he refrain from murdering him in prison, right, from executing him in prison, um, as we saw last time, but he has uh, fair and clean kept his horse and his armor, um, he seems to, after his initial grief, have always planned, eventually, to release Sir Tristram, um, on condition only that he swear to be friends to his two surviving sons, right? Um, he does the opposite of holding a grudge. And notice how understanding the both of them are, right? It would be easy to think, or, you know, easy to say that... Um, <clears throat> that either Tristram or Sardaris could very easily hold a grudge. I mean, Tristram killed three of Sardaris' sons. We've seen people go after and, like, lay ambushes to, like, murder folks for, for less reason than for only the killing of a single relative, right, rather than three. Um, and yet Sardaris understands, right? Um, when Tristram says, 
had they been my next of kin, right? You know, had they been the closest one, I couldn't have done otherwise, right? He's saying, look, it's a contact sport, you know? Like, this is what it means to joust. This is what it means um, to be in this world in the first place, right? Um, this, is a, this is a tough life. People die. Um, and Tristram says, look, it was, you know, in the tournament, I couldn't have acted differently. I didn't intend to kill your sons, right? They, you know, were killed in the, in, you know, by mishap in the, uh, in the joust. This, this kind of thing happens all the time. Notice also we've seen Lancelot be equal, equally unapologetic, right? Um, as long as he didn't murder anybody, right? I mean, if somebody, if somebody dies in clean jousts, right? It's unfortunate. But it happens again, like contact sport, right? I mean, like you got to sign the waiver first before you do this. Like you don't just go out uh, and uh, attack people with deadly weapons and not realize that somebody can get hurt. So, you know, Tristram says, look, you know, again, I, I didn't do anything wrong. If I had slain him by treason or treachery, I would have been worthy to have died, right? Then like you should have killed me. Like you would have been right to kill me um, had I murdered them. Had I done some, you know, had I, you know, stabbed him in the back or, um, you know, ganged up with a bunch of other people just like with the intention of, of, of slaughtering them. If I, you know, decapitated them when they were begging for mercy, anything like that. Right. If I'd done any of those things, then, yeah, absolutely. You would be right to kill me. And notice, so Doris accepts that all this I consider. Right. That all ye did was by force of knechthood, by force of knechthood. Right. Sir Darius also understands that this is a uh, that this is a contact sport, right? Catriona, exactly. Um, the probability of death—it's an occupational hazard, right? Everybody, you know, all good knights undertake that, you know, undertake this life with the knowledge that they could very well die, even in a friendly combat, right? Even in um, uh, even in a tournament of this kind. Exactly, Carito. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. That's exactly it. Um, uh, and by the way, see again, Carita, isn't uh, isn't just another example, right, of another line uh, in that movie, which is so much funnier after you've read Mallory, right? And you see people having that conversation quite earnestly, right? Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. Um, <laughs> but anyway... Um, so, um, yeah, and, and yeah, and the deal about the remaining, the deal about the remaining sons, right? Is like, so, you know, it might seem counterintuitive, right? But what Sir Darius does, he responds in exactly the right, like he responds in all the right ways. He shows the proper amount, uh, like he shows an understandable amount of harshness towards Tristram upon finding that this is the guy who killed his three sons in the tournament. But then he shows an appropriate level of mercy, understanding that he didn't actually do anything wrong, right? This stuff happens and it was, it's a shame, but you know, like, uh, it's just the way things go when, you know, your sons set out to be knights. And, um, uh, but that promise, right? Be a friend to my two surviving sons. Uh, in this, in a sense, Sir Darius, I mean, it's not like he comes out a net winner. I'm not trying to suggest that his three dead sons don't mean anything, even if there are only two of them. But rather, um, he does 
get good, you know, draw good, rather than drawing, you know, uh, uh, emerging from this with Sir Tristram as his enemy for life, whom he's sworn to slay however he can, or something like that, which we've seen happen before. Instead, he merges, emerges in quite the opposite direction, right? Now Sir Tristram is a friend of his house and has sworn uh, to help and support his two surviving sons, right? Um, so now he has one of the two greatest knights in the land as like the patron and protector uh, of his sons. That's, that's a great outcome, a really great outcome from this. And look how patient Tristram is. Tristram is not upset, right? Okay, you helped me in prison. In your prison, I got sick and almost died. Like, he could be kind of upset about how he's been treated uh, by Sir Darius, especially since he was Sir Darius's guest at the time, right, when he was imprisoned. Um, you know, he could be calling him, you know, a traitor knight and all of these things. It's, you know, you, you could make that accusation, but he doesn't, right? Um... Ye have done to us but as a natural knight ought to do, right? He's not trying to say that it was exemplary, Sir Darius's behavior, but it was, total, it was totally not, totally understandable, right? Any natural knight would feel that way, right? I totally get it, man. I killed your three sons, and that's awful. I, you know, I'd be upset, too, if it were me, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um... Okay, all right, let's get, so Sir Darius is a good egg. One of the other things that we get here, and this is going to be a theme that we're going to see throughout tonight's reading, long reading section, is in some ways I think the lines between the good knights and the bad knights begins to come clearer and clearer. That doesn't mean that the good knights become more and more are becoming more and more perfect, you know. Tristram still has his issues, right? Lancelot has some issues still, right? Lamorak has some issues still. Palamides has his issues, right? All of the greatest knights still have problems. It's not that they're becoming simpler and simpler, you know, sort of more and more one-dimensional characters. But the bad guys are becoming clearer, right? Um we are getting a more and more clear examples of the bad sort of knights and seeing them act more and more. For, first with King Mark, of course, right? You know, we have the adventures of the bad king and the bad murderous knight, um, who is King Mark. Um, and then, of course, we're going to be escalating towards Sir Gawain and his brothers, right? As they go completely off the rails, um, and, uh, and, you know, Sir Bruce sans pitié running around, like literally running around, both on foot and on horseback, uh, uh, always escaping, always doing horrible things, uh, and assuming, hoping he's going to get away with it. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's keep going. So this is Sir Tristram in the house of Morgan Le Fay, where he has ended up, uh, unbeknownst to himself, and uh, she's going to let him go. Remember, she was laying traps for him. She wanted to snag Sir Tristram earlier on, but she's going to let him go. Um, and all she asks is, it's very reasonable, right? She gives him a, a shiny new shield and says, I'll let you go if you just if you bear this shield at this next tournament that you're going to go to. That's all. What could go wrong, right? 
Madam, sighed Sir Tristram, let me see the shield that I shall bear. Then the, sh the shield was brought forth, and the field was Gulda's, with a king and a queen therein painted, and a king and a knicked standing above them, with his own foot standing upon the king's head, and the other upon the queen's head. Madam, sighed Sir Tristram, this is a fire shield and a meekly, but what signifieth this king and this queen, and that knicked standing upon both their heades? I shall tell you, sighed Morgan le Fay, it signifieth King Arthur and Queen Guinevere, and a knicked that holdeth him both in bondage and in servage. Madam, who is that knicked? sighed Sir Tristram. Sir, that shall ye not wit as at this time, said the queen. But, as the French book said, unfortunately the French book is going to leave us in suspense as to who that knight might be. But as the French book said, Queen Morgan loved Sir Lancelot best, and ever she desired him, and he would never love her, nor do nothing at her request. And therefore she held many connectives together to have taken him by strength, and because that she deemed that Sir Lancelot loved Queen Guinevere paramour, and he, she him again, therefore Dom Morgan ordained that shield to put Sir Lancelot to a rebuke, and to, to that intent. That's that King Arthur meeked understand the love between them. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, Karina Mor Morgan is both conniving and also surprisingly, surprisingly open about her intentions. Um, I love the, the gloss, right? Um, how she almost explains the shield to Tristram. And Tristram's naivete is kind of classic here, right? Who is that knight? I, I, who could that possibly be? I can't understand that, right? Uh, like, who does he think it is? I don't know if Tristram is not the sharpest knife in the drawer or if, uh, you know, I, or what is he? Is he not the stoutest lance on the rack? I'm not quite sure what metaphor to use here. Uh, but, um, uh, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, uh, it seems a little transparent, but that's okay. Um, a couple things that I would emphasize here, right? First of all, notice the particular symbolism involved, right? When she glosses the shield, well, let me put this a different way. Think about what the shield does not depict, right? It does not depict... I, don't know, I mean, like, there are a lot of ways she could have gone when designing the, the, this, this particular shield, right? If she wanted to do a, so, you know, a tell-all shield, right? Uh, she, could have, um, she could have depicted, like, you know a knight and a queen in bed while the king stands nearby, like looking out a window or something like he, she, he, she could have been a little more graphic, right? She could have been, she could have even just like shown the two of them kissing or something like that. Like that is, it could have been about their love explicitly, but that's not what the shield is about, right? The shield is about the, the relationship that the knight has sort of the, the supremacy that the knight holds over the two of them. His foot standing, one foot on each one of their heads. And notice that's what she emphasizes when she explains it, right? 
uh, a knik that holdeth them both in bondage and in servage, right? Um, he, he, he's keeping them in captivity and in slavery, right? Wow. Okay, so that's different. So the, 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 message, the message of the shield, in short, is not, Hey, Arthur, Lancelot's sleeping with your wife, right? That's not the message. The message on the shield is, Hey, Arthur, Lancelot's running your kingdom, Lancelot is dominating this realm, right? Lancelot is the one who really wears the pants in your kingdom, right? That is her message. And the, 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 the relationship is one thing, right? That is Lancelot's inappropriate relationship, or at least this is Morgan's accusation, right? That Lancelot's relationship with Guinevere is inappropriate. That, of course, obviously, I mean, again, we go on to say that she's going to put Lancelot to a, to a rebuke um, to that intent that King Arthur might understand the love between them. So we do get that, right? But it's not just that. That's not, again, it's not, um, that is not the primary message of what the shield actually depicts. And it's interesting. I can't help um, but think yeah, Mike, exactly. It's it's a comment on oppression. Absolutely. Um, uh, and um, yeah, Jennifer says, it seems like a rather dangerous shield for any knight to be wearing in court. Yeah, I mean, Jennifer, you're right. I think that the, uh, the uh, possibility of this uh, shield being misunderstood is pretty significant, right? I mean, the, the odds are pretty high. Um, I mean, if you're a knight coming in bearing this shield, it's like, what, it's, are you trying to say that's you, right? I'm going to be, I'm the boss of both Arthur and Guinevere, right? I'm at the top of the heap. That would seem like a dubious, uh, certainly, um, message to be attempting to deliver and certainly very possible, at the very least, that they might think that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Rachel is wondering if it, if, uh, um, Arthur might not find the possibility of usurpation uh, actually more more threatening, right? Um, than merely, you know, some kind of uh, accusation of inappropriate love between Lancelot and his queen. But of course, what what Morgan is doing is one step more subtle than that. She's not just trying to out Lancelot and Guinevere. She is she is doing that, but she is also showing the next step down the road. Right. If Lancelot is having an inappropriate relationship with the queen. Wake up, Arthur. This is a political situation. Right. Um, There is a reason why. uh, Sleeping with the queen is treason, not just in the sense in which Mallory so often uses that word, but in the modern sense of the word treason. Right. because it calls the whole succession into doubt, right? If the queen is not faithful to the king, uh, then you don't know whose her kids are, and you open up the whole possibility of the the realm being taken away and thrown into civil war. And all. this is why, although it seems harsh and a double standard, this is why uh, a queen who uh, uh, commits adultery is executed like that is a capital offense by the queen um, because of the because of the political ramifications. Um, anyhow, so 
and we, we, we looked at this a little bit before, right? Remember our conversation about this at the end of uh, the uh, story of uh, Sir Lakot Bagtail, uh, when we saw Lancelot acting as the upper end of the feudal food chain, right? Um, we, we're seeing all of these knights... Uh, all of these knights and all of their vassals who are holding their lands and their loyalties from Lancelot, not from Arthur directly, and only from Arthur in as much as Lancelot himself uh, is submitting to Arthur. Um, so, again, I do think that the, the message that she's trying to convey through this shield is both more all-encompassing and also more subtle than merely, you know... Lancelot and Guinevere sitting in a tree, right? Um, so, uh, and, 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 she, and she's not totally wrong, right? The possibility for this absolutely does exist. The other thing that I would emphasize, and I've been, um, um, I've been trying to emphasize this all along, uh, especially since that passage that we were looking at a long time back when, you know, Lancelot was describing his... Uh, uh, you know, principles of sexual morality. I want to draw your attention to the technical vocabulary that is being used in this paragraph. Because that she deemed that Sir Launcelot loved Queen Guinevere Paramour and she him again. Therefore, Dame Morgan ordained that shield. Because she deemed, because she believed, she thought, notice she doesn't no, she doesn't have evidence. She deems that Sir Lancelot loves Guinevere Paramore. Right? Paramore, that's important, right? That's the courtly love word. Uh, if you love someone Paramore, remember that's exactly the language that Lancelot used. That's what he said he's not into, right? He rege- he, 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 he didn't want to be married, right? He was opting to remain single. So, you know, he could stay in the full-time tournament circuit and everything, um, continue being a knight errant full-time, not have to settle down, mind the castle, all that kind of thing. Um, But also, he explicitly rejected, specifically, loving paramours, right? Getting involved in these illicit sexual relationships, exactly like we saw... Lancel, or, uh, Tristram carrying on not only with La Belle Isode, but with Sir Seguarides' wife, right? By the way, do you catch that passage uh, in uh, uh, King uh, in the King Mark section where Palamides was uh, mentioned Sir Seguarides and mentioned that he was also a Saracen, right? He was sort of listing other Saracen knights that were around, and he mentioned Sir Seguarides, right? There's Sir uh, Palamides' brother, Sir Safir, whom he's referred to several times before, as also a really great knight like he is. Um, uh, Sir Palamides considers his brother a greater knight than he is. But Sir Seguarides gets mentioned. So Sir, Sir Seguarides, whose wife Tristram sleeps with, you remember Sir Seguarides from way back, uh, turns out is also a Saracen, right? So uh, that's kind of interesting. That was not mentioned at the time. Um, but anyhow, okay. So... Um, uh, anyway, uh, oh yeah, so uh, uh, again, to me, the two words that I would draw attention to in that sentence that I had just reread there from that last paragraph is first paramour, right? She, uh, 
does Lancelot love Guinevere Paramore? Because that's all that matters. Does Lancelot love Guinevere? Sure. Yeah. And he confesses that openly. And there's nothing wrong with that. And Arthur knows that. Arthur fully approves of that. Why wouldn't he? Right? Lancelot is Guinevere's champion. Lancelot loves Guinevere. It's fine. Everything. Guinevere loves him. You know, it's all good. Unless they love each other paramours. Right? If they're sleeping together, it's a problem. Right? If That's it. I mean, if they're sleeping together, it's a problem. If they are attached to each other emotionally... Who cares? That's not a problem. King Arthur's not going to be bothered by that. The only question is if they love each other, if he loves her paramour and she him again. Because that's when things get dicey, right? Um, so the first important word is paramour. The second important word is deemed, right? She doesn't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Many people speculate, but remember one of the things that we saw from the moment that Lancelot explained his moral code there, right? What we saw explicitly, what Lancelot himself acknowledges is that his moral code is countercultural. It's not how most people think, and therefore most people look at Lancelot and Guinevere and say, well, obviously, right? Uh, that's, you know, I know par- love loving paramours when I see it, and that's it, right? Like, clearly, that. But they're judging them by their own standards. Lancelot says, no, no, that's not how it is with me and Guinevere. Not at all, right? One thing that I have found many, many times. um, Modern readers seem very unwilling to believe that land that that's even what Lancelot is shooting for, right? Um, my students, I remember, you know, my undergrads back in the old days, when we would get to these, you know, to this kind of thing, would all start rolling their eyes, be like, "Oh, sure, yeah, right, yeah, pure love, Lancelot, right? Yeah, we all know how that goes." <laughs> Careful with the "we all know" thing, right? Um, exactly how Maori is said explicitly how Maori is setting Lancelot up is as someone who is different, someone who's setting out to be different. Is he going to succeed? No, he's not going to completely exceed, t- succeed. But if we simply disbelieve his sincerity completely from the beginning, right? If we don't, if we think this is all, if we conclude for some reason, just from our own point of view, Right, that Lancelot is insincere. We have no evidence to believe that Lancelot is insincere, right? Um, apart from the fact that many other people seem skeptical because they are, but we see the differences, right? The text draws our attention to the ways in which other people aren't trying to do this, but Lancelot is, right? So we have to be careful with that. Okay, yeah, Karita, I agree. This is to me, this is the benefit. There's a, there there is a payoff that you get from giving uh, Lancelot and Guinevere the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, and that is exactly, Carita, as Karita was just saying, if you believe that he really means what he says, it makes the whole thing so much more sad, right? Yeah, it's a much better story. Um, if we just assume that the, the, that whole thing is just nonsense from the beginning, it's not a tragedy anymore. It's barely even interesting, 
in fact. Um, it just becomes a story of when will King Arthur finally wake up and smell the coffee, right? I finally notice what has been glaringly obvious to absolutely everyone except him, right? Um, notice again the emphasis in that last sentence, at the end of that sentence, I should say. To that intent that King Arthur meeked understand the love between them. Not recognize, or like realize the love between, you know, it's, the point is not that Arthur's going to be like, what? Lancelot and Guinevere love each other? Holy cow, I never knew! Right? That's not the point. That he might understand it. Right? What she wants, what Morgan Le Fay is going for is Arthur to be like, wait a second. Maybe they love each other paramours. Right? I thought that this was all legit. Maybe they're actually carrying on behind my back. Right? Maybe they're sleeping together. That is the thing which Arthur is not thinking. And... So far, we have every reason to believe that he's right not to be thinking it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. We get, I've, my restraint, I've skipped over a another Tristram and Palamide scene. Uh, there's more that could be done there, but we, we have the moment where Tristram saved Sir Palamides' life again, right? And re- and notice a remarkable thing. He recognizes Palamides in his armor, right? The two of them are getting to know each other pretty well. Uh, so he sees Sir Palamides fighting one on nine, right? As Sir Bruce on Spite and his posse, he's gotten together a posse on this occasion, uh, are trying to murder Sir Palamides. And Sir Tristram comes and breaks it up, and Sir Bruce has that, like, you know, walk away, kid, and mind your own business. Uh, and Tristram comes in and saves Palamides' life, and Palamides knows that he saved his, his life. Um, Tristram reveals his name, and they want to fight each other, right? But Palamides is like, I can't, A, because I'm injured, and B, you did kind of just save my life. And I feel a little awkward about that, right? Um, once again, Tristram rescuing Palamides, and, and he knew who he was, right? Even though he later in that same scene tells Palamides that he's the knight in the world that he hates, that, you know, that, that he, Palamides, is the knight in the world that he, Sir Tristram, hates most, yet Sir Tristram knew who Sir Palamides was when he comes in and rescues him, or he doesn't rescue him by accident. Uh, so once again, we can see this this was, you know, the sort of the, 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 the frenemy bromance that, you know, uh, to use two modern portmanteau words, um, uh, continues here between Tristram and Palamides. In the end, of course, the two of them make a date. It's like a play date, except different, uh, that they're going to meet at the tomb, uh, uh, near Camelot, uh, the famous tomb near Camelot, and they're going to fight each other, right? And you may remember that that tomb is the place where the famous fight was prophesied by Merlin to happen. And in case you've forgotten it, Mallard is going to remind you. And Sir Tristram rode straight to Camelot, to that peron that Merlion had mad to fore, where Sir Launcior, that was the king's son of Ireland, had was slain by the hondas of Sir Balin, and in the same place was the fair laddie Colombsline, that was love under Sir Launcior, for after he was dead, she took his sword and thrust it through her body. And so by the craft
craft of Merlion, he mad to enter this Knecht Lancior and his laddie Colomb under own stone. And at that time, Merlion prophesied that in that same place should feet twa the best Knechtes that ever were in King Arthur's dies, and twa of the best lovers. So, one Sir Tristram come to the tomb of stone, he looked about him after Sir Palamides. Then was he war, where come a samely knight riding against him, all in white, and the covered shield. When he come nigh, Sir Tristram, he said on hicht, that is, Sir Tristram is the one saying on hicht, Ye be welcome, Sir Knight, and well and truly have ye holden your promise. Okay, so, um, Nancy, I don't think we did know her name before, Colombe. Was she named? I think she was just the Lottie at that point. Um, and I think she is Lady Columba as in, like, as in, as in a dove, yes. Uh, um, Nancy, I agree. That is a, a sort of a fascinating moment here as we're recalling the scene and, in fact, getting what I think is new. I don't remember. Somebody look back and, and find it. But, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce, if my name were Bruce... Uh, I would totally adopt Sir Bruce Sans Pitté uh, as uh, uh, like a screen name or something in particular, as you suggest, uh, if you are a teacher with your students. Uh, it's a really great nickname, I think, uh, for a school teacher, definitely, um, uh, especially come exam time. Uh, but anyway, okay. A um, couple things here, right? Think about the context of this fight. Tristram obviously thinks that it is Sir Palamides coming. Why shouldn't he, right? He's made an appointment with Sir Palamides, uh, and he, uh, and and the, the the knight shows up, right? He is kind of in disguise, right? But whatever, you know, it's all cool. People do that sometimes. Uh, so he still thinks that this is Palamides coming uh, to fight him, right? Well and truly have ye holden your promises, Tristram, showing he thinks it's Palamides, right? Of course, it turns out it's Lancelot. Um, but notice... Why here? Why did they make their date here? It's one of the things that, that... It's never stated in this scene. But I don't think that this is an accident. I don't think it's just a coincidence either. This stone is well known, right? When It's clear when Tristram suggests it as their meeting place that both he and Sir Palamides know full well about this famous stone, right? Um... And do they think that they're gonna, like, in fighting, make it come true? I don't know, like, it's, this is the spot that was prophesied to be the place where the greatest battle ever happened, right? Does Tristram choose it because he thinks it's the fitting place for what, I think both of them are hoping to be like the final showdown between Tristram and Palamides, right? After all this time, after all the fighting they've already done, after the number of times that Sir Tristram has already mopped the floor with Sir Palamides, they're finally going to come back for the one big heavyweight bout, and they're going to hold it at the stone where it was prophesied will be the greatest fight between two knights that, that will ever be seen in Logris, right? So... Again, I don't think that that's a coincidence. And, of course, Sir Tristram kind of thinks that the prophecy is being fulfilled, maybe. I don't know. But uh, 
of course, the prophecy is being fulfilled, and it's Lancelot, though, so he doesn't uh, he doesn't understand it. Um, uh, yeah. Um, no, so Arthur, I'm not suggesting that Tristram is A. Randall, my, uh, my uh, subtitle, uh, which I couldn't resist, the look for that cometh at unawares. It's not that Tristram is A. Randall. Uh, it's, um, uh, in a sense, of course, it's the fight itself. Like, the, 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 the duel between Tristram and Lancelot is the thing that was looked for, right, by Merwin, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, which he already carved in gold letters on this rock a long time ago. Um, but of course, it's still it's unexpected, right? Uh, because uh, Tristram doesn't know that it's Lancelot, so they're having this fight without realizing that they are having this fight. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like I don't know. I don't know if people think now. As I recall, usually Merlin is extremely explicit. As I recall, the actual text on the rock names Lancelot and Tristram, doesn't it? But again, it seems to me non coincidental. Um, so, Zach, I don't know if it's necessarily a question of trying to, like, prove the prophecy true in themselves, necessarily, that would make this a popular spot for duels, but just sort of by association. Like, this is the place of great duels, right? So, okay, it seems a fitting spot uh, for uh, uh, Tristram and Palamides finally to have it out. Um, yeah, James Stevens is also imagining that this might have been a, a very popular kind of dueling spot uh, in that way. Stephen, of course, points out that nobody actually listens to Merlin anyway, so uh, the fact that Tristram and, and Lancelot are named uh, co- could even, of course, be overlooked by people who don't really read the fine print or possibly are not even literate at all, uh, as we've talked about before. Okay. Oop. All right. The result, of course, uh, at the end of the battle, after the two of them half kill each other, is that they then reveal their names, and both of them kneel and present their swords to the other, uh, each one stumbling over himself in order to yield to the other, uh, and in the end, Lancelot brings him triumphantly by love and not by force uh, to the court. So, Tristram comes to the court, but he does not come a prisoner, right? He does not come uh, in order to... uh, uh, to be brought as a defeated knight uh, to be presented before Arthur, uh, but rather as a friend. And indeed as the fulfillment of Lancelot's quest, right? Lancelot took an oath uh, to uh, seek for Sir Tristram, and he finally has achieved it. Um, okay. So here's Tristram coming into the court and being heartily welcomed. Than King Arthur took Sir Tristram by the hond and went to the table round. Then come Queen Guinevere, and many laddies with her, and although laddies sighed at own voice, Welcome, Sir Tristram! Welcome, sighed the damsels. Welcome, sighed King Arthur, for one of the best knictes, and the gentlest of the world, and the man of most worship, for of all manner of hunting thou bearest the price, and of all measures of blowing thou art the beginning, of all the termis of hunting and hawking ye are the beginner, of all instruments of music, ye are the best. Therefore, gentle knicked, said King Arthur, ye are welcome to this court. And also, I pray you, said King Arthur, grant me a don. Sir, it shall be at your commandment, said Sir Tristram rashly. Well, said King Arthur, I will desire that ye shall abide in my court. Sir, said Tristram, thereto me is loath, for I have to do in many countries. Not so, said King Arthur. 
ye have promised me, ye may not say nay. Sir, said Sir Tristram, I wall as ye wall. Than went King Arthur unto the sages about the round table, and looked on every siege which were void that lacked connectus. And than the king see in the siege of Sir Marhalt letters that sighed, This is the siege of the noble connect Sir Tristramus. And than King Arthur mad Sir Tristram a connect of the round table, with great noble and a fest, as micht be thought. Um... Yeah, Jennifer says Arthur has learned well the old unconditional promise trick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he he can. Uh, it's, we don't usually see King Arthur himself deploying that against others, right? Uh, uh, interesting that he uh, caught Sir Tristram on the hop there uh, under those circumstances uh, to give him an unqualified gift, right? Um, yeah. Um, David, you are right that usually on the first meeting it's the visiting knight who asks a favor of the king rather than the other way around, right? We saw that both with Sir Lakote Maltile and with Sir Gareth, right? When they were new come to the court, they would ask a, uh, they would ask a boon, a don, a gift of the king. Um, so it is true, Arthur is pointedly reversing this. And I suspect, Jennifer, that it's part of the surprise of that, part of the... Um, Sir Tristram is kind of caught flat-footed by Arthur, Arthur's reversal of the custom there. That, you know, when the king, at your first meeting with the king, asks you for a boon, right, what do you do? Right, you say yes. Uh, sure, it shall be at your commandment. Anything you ask, king, and then he gets, he's got you, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, as for... Um, as for... Sir Marhalt, uh, Arthur, it's not that Sir Marhalt was a seat warmer, uh, exactly, rather that Tristram is his heir, right? You know, Tristram does take Sir Marhalt's place. Um, that's no insult meant to Sir Marhalt, right? Um, it might seem a little... <laughs> a little Darwinian, perhaps, right? That, like, you... you you kill a knight and you get his seat on the uh, on the round table. Um, yeah, Marhalt is dead. Remember, uh, Deborah Marhalt is the one who took Tristram's own sword in the brain with the true edge, right? With Cornwall and Ireland way back at the... I mean, it was a long time ago now. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. The one we got the whole forensics thing where they extracted the piece of sword from his brain and his mom kept it in a box. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good times. Anyway, um, so... Um, uh, yeah, anyhow, um, it's so in one sense, as I say, it seems maybe a little cutthroat, maybe a little survival of the fittest to uh, uh, to take poor Sir Marhalt's seat and that like the friends and kin of Sir Marhalt might not be b- best pleased that the guy who killed him uh, ends up getting his chair. Uh, but there's there's another sense in which um, there's another sense in which it is perfectly fitting, right? And I wouldn't actually think that Sir Marhalt would probably object very much, actually. Um, uh, It's fitting, right, that Tristram should take his seat. Um, You know, Tristram has displaced him. Remember, it's, it's all about, you know, proving. You remember that, you know, to be a knight proved, right? 
Tristram's defeat of Marholt was the was the moment when he proved himself as a knight, right? It, it is it is fitting, right? Just as it's fitting, um, and the Red Knight of the Red Lawns, you know, becomes a becomes a reformed character, uh, uh, as C.S. Lewis might say, uh, after he's defeated by Sir Gareth, right, and becomes his vassal and and a well-adjusted individual who becomes a knight of the Round Table and everything's fine, right? Um, now he survives it, right? Uh, and again, just like the three sons of Sir Darius at the beginning. You know, Sir Tristram didn't uh, murder Sir Marhalt, right? You know, he defeated him in clean battle, and and you know, Sir Sir Marhalt died, and he would have killed Sir Tristram, and it's all it was all fair. Um, anyway, so it all works. So Devra, yeah, we get the sense here that so it, it at first it seemed that Merlin was just you know taking his golden sharpie and writing the names of the knight of the current you know he writes king pelinor right on the back of king pelinor's seat and stuff um apparently it's 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 cooler than that right the uh what merlin did with his magic uh ink here uh is cooler that they're they now are they're self-labeling seats right so arthur doesn't elevate sir tristram to the round table right the round table invites sir tristram Right or rather, Arthur himself finds. Like notice, Arthur initiates this ritual, right? Um, at the very beginning, there was this sense of like election, right? Remember the debate between whether Sir Tor or Sir Bagdemagus was going to be accepted as a knight of the Round Table when four of the other knights, you know, the older knights were killed, right? And so they were getting replacements. So that's when Sir Gawain got on. That's when Sir Grifflet got on, and then it was going to be either Sir Bagdemagus or. Um, uh, or Sir Tor, and it ended up being Sir Tor. You didn't see anybody consulting the chairs at that point, right? The sort of mythos of the round table has changed, has developed now over time. And now notice, it's not a question of Arthur choosing who he's going to take as a knight of the round table. He goes to the chairs and he looks. So Arthur himself just goes and walks around the seats and looks to see. He's trying to discover whether or not Sir Tristram is a knight of the round table. And he finds that he is. There he is. What used to say the seat of Sir Marhalt, which has been presumably empty this whole time, because it still had Marhalt's name on it. Marhalt's dead now, right? So you don't put somebody in Sir Marhalt's seat until the name changes on the back, right? Uh, um, it, Brian, exactly. It's like an early version of the sorting hat. It's 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 kind of like that. Uh, Karina says uh, that just as the wand chooses the wizard, so the chair chooses the knight. Yeah, exactly. That's just exactly it. Um, uh, but um, but yeah. So so it is it is ordained, right? Um, it is destined that tr- you know. It's again whether. No matter what Arthur's opinion of it might be, Sir Tristram is a knight of the Round Table. Now, Carita, uh, as to the um, sort of the political situation, it's a little bit complicated. Um, is he still affiliated with King Mark? Is Tristram still affiliated with King Mark? Has he changed his allegiances? Can you swear to more than one king at once? Apparently, yes. He can become a knight of the round table. He can become a knight of King Arthur's court and yet remain a knight of King Mark's court as well. That's particularly easy 
when the one king is a vassal of the other king, right? King Mark theoretically holds his lands from King Arthur um, and is under his umbrella, though he's not been very forthcoming and he's not been very friendly about this. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, nevertheless, King Arthur definitely has rank over King Mark. If, you know, somebody were sworn to, like, King uh, Ryance, remember King Ryance, the dude who uh, made cloaks out of King's beards? Um and sent the insulting message to Arthur way back at the beginning when Arthur's beard was still kind of scraggly uh, because of his youth. Um, you presumably couldn't swear to him and King Arthur both, right? That would not be okay. But in this sense, it's okay. Zach, you're right that Tristram is also exiled, or at least semi-exiled from Cornwall. I mean, there seems to be a kind of an on-again, off-again thing uh, with King Mark and Tristram. Um King Mark doesn't seem wholly consistent on this point. Um, but yeah, he's been kind of uh, 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 sent out. But remember, that's what bring, what brings King Mark out of his shell, right? What, what leads King Mark to do his little stint as a traveling errant knight here in this section is that he is um, he's afraid that Tristram is going to be getting more honor, right? Um, and then you know, what he intended for a punishment, sending, banishing Tristram from Cornwall, is going to end up being a benefit to him, right? And he hates the thought of that. Um, yeah, yeah. And Dolor Stroke, I agree with you that, um, you know, thinking of, you know, uh, 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 Dolly there is thinking of uh, the rock, again, Merlin's rock, uh, and, you know, thinking how both Tristram and Lancelot are called two of the greatest lovers, they're also two of the greatest, you know, home wreckers and kingdom wreckers as well. Yeah, uh, there is. It's hard not to read that sentence, that, you know, Merlinic inscription uh, or Merleonic inscription, perhaps, uh, Dolly, and say and not think to be the greatest lover means to be the greatest destroyer. Right. I mean, it's um, love is a problematic thing, right? It is almost never just a positive thing. In fact, the only time we've ever seen it be just a, a, an unequivocally positive thing is uh, with, like, Sir Gareth, Sir Gareth and Leoness, right? Which, uh, you know, those their adorable temp attempts to commit fornication <laughs> and fail, uh, and, and then finally getting married, right? Um so yeah, and everything else, it's um, it's definitely um, trouble, definitely trouble. Okay, um, one last thing here: the praise that Tristram gets here. We've seen this before, of course. The business about hunting and um, uh, <laughs> I know what he means by "of all measures of blowing, thou art the beginning." Uh, it kind of it kind of sounds like a vague insult that you would give to a lecturer, but maybe I'm just oversensitive on that point. Um, anyway, is uh, the gentlest of the world and the man of most worship. Most worship is a description of himself, but of course also a description of uh, the respect that is accorded him by everybody around the world. Um, the gentlest. 
speaks of his birth, but of course he's not more gently born in that way. I mean, yes, he's he's uh, you know of uh, uh, of kings uh, on father's side and mother's side, but that could be said of many, right? Um, so it doesn't mean gentlest in that way, um, the gentlest of his deeds. And that might seem strange, and I think Carita would object that Tristram is the gentlest knight that we've seen. Um, but um, there's a dog that loves him, so, you know, I guess he's got that going for him. Um, <laughs> the, the, the whole world seems to be Tristram's hype man, <laughs> says, says Carita. I, I hear it. I hear you. It's true. Everybody loves Sir Tristram, no matter what. That's, I, I mean, except Sir Palamides. And even he is conflicted on this point, you know. Um, all right. Um, when King Mark does set out, the very first thing that happens is that he, okay, well, the very first thing that happens is he shows himself to be a murderer, right? As he up and bisects the head of one of his chief supporters whom he took with him to help him, right? Because what he send, sets out to do is to find uh, in, in trap and murder Tristram. And when his, you know, uh, when his knight says, I'm not into that, he, uh, uh, you know, puts his sword from his forehead down through to his teeth. And then the other knight that he brought along with him is going to go and appeal him of treason, uh, at King Arthur's court. Though for some reason, and I'm not quite sure why, uh, Sir Amount, uh, that other knight, um, agrees to do that without naming King Mark by name, um, which seems a strange concession for him to make. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> Chris says, I'm not going to be drawn into liking Tristram just because a dog likes him. I know, I know. No, I, 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 I'm... Um, Thinking of that old expression, which was a famous, exp uh, a favorite expression of uh, uh, one of my former colleagues, um, uh, who was wont to say, especially when frustrated with some of our other colleagues, uh, "There's no, uh, uh, there's no, there's no man so awful that he can't find uh, a woman and a dog to love him." Um, and uh, anyway, yeah. So Tristram has both a woman and a dog who love him. So there he goes. Um, Anyway, okay, so King Mark is here encountering with Sir Lamorak and Sir Dinadin. Sir Dinadin is traveling with Sir uh, with Sir Lamorak now, and um, uh, he um, they meet with King Mark, and King Mark uh, uh, Lamorak carries him clean out of his saddle. You get this. Uh, this sense of this quite spectacular fall that King Mark takes. He's not just, like, knocked off his saddle. He's, like, lifted out and borne over the back of his horse in the air on the tip of Lamorak's spear and dropped down. Uh, by the way, I really like what one of the things that, that, that uh, sort of emerged here, how Lamorak is the best jouster ever, right? You know, he's only the third best knight in the world. Um, but everybody who sees him says Lamorak is the greatest jouster they've ever seen. On foot, right, with a sword, Tristram and, La and, and Lancelot could both take him, right? But in horseback and with a lance, man, there's nobody like Lamorak. Right? I think that's kind of cool. Anyway, okay. So, um, King Mark gets knocked out of his horse emphatically by Sir Lamorak, and he wants a second round with a sword. 
And so he followed and overtook him. That is, he, the first he is King Mark, and the second he is Sir Lamorak, and bade him abide. What will ye do? said Sir Lamorak. Sir, he said, I will fight with a sword, for ye have shamed me with a spear. Now, this is exactly how everybody talks. We've seen, how many knights have we seen do this kind of thing, right? And get all upset if they're not allowed to try to, you know, make up for losing uh, uh, with the jousting, right? So, um, anyway, so, so here we go with King Mark being placed into the position of, like, every other knight that we've seen. Uh, King Mark establishing himself as a knight. We've looked at how King Arthur established himself as a knight, especially at the beginning, but even now, occasionally, he's still mixing it up, right? And although he's sometimes, like, he got, got knocked down by Tristram, right? But still, nevertheless, he does a pretty good job. Um, he knocked Sir Palamides off his horse at one point, right? Uh, anyway, so he's going to fight with Sir Lamorak, and we'll see how this goes. This is one of my favorite fight descriptions in all of Mallory. And therewith they dashed together with her, with Swerdis. And Sir Lamorak suffered him, and forbar him. And King Mark was passing busy, and smote thick strokes. Then Sir Lamorak saw he would not stint. He waxed somewhat wroth, and doubled his strokes, for he was of the noblest of the world. And he beat him so on the helm, that his head hang nigh on the saddle-bow. When Sir Lamorak saw him far so, he sighed, Kneeked, what cheer? Meseemeth ye have now your fill of feeking. It were pity to do you any more harm, for ye are but a mean kneeked. Therefore, I give you leave to go where ye list. Gramercy, said King Mark, for ye and I be no matches. Then Sir Dinadin mocked King Mark and sighed, Ye are not able to match a good kneeked. You're not a match for anybody. Um... I just, I love the description. We've seen unequal combats before and stuff, but the way that we as readers are invited to laugh at King Mark here is, I think, unique in any of the other descriptions that we we've seen people humiliated, like the way that Sir Gareth humiliates Sir Kay, right when Sir Kay comes after Beaumains to teach him a lesson at the beginning, and Sir uh, Gareth takes him down. Right. Um, and like, what does he break his leg or something? And he injures him, right, in some way. So we've seen unequal combats like that before. Um, but um, but this is totally different, right? Uh, Lamarack suffered him and forbar him, right? And you can see, you know, Lamarack, like, you know, just fighting, like, over here, you know, like, not even paying attention, right? Well, while. While King Mark is passing busy and smote thick strokes, right? So there he's he's hacking and slashing and he's making himself very big. But that's such a bad compliment, right? He was passing busy and smote thick strokes. He's really working at it, right? He's really going and here's Lamorak, you know, kind of having a conversation with Sir Dinadin while he's holding him off with one hand. Um, uh, and then... And then he gets mad. Why does he get mad? Because he won't stop, right? He would not stint. He just kept flailing at him, right? So finally, Lamorak is like, all right, I've had enough of this, right? So he doubles his strokes and beats him so on the helm uh, that he knocks his head down onto his saddlebow and then says, Knight, what cheer? <laughs> so how you doing over there? Uh, have you? It looks to me like you've had your fill, I think, right? Um, the... 
the ease with, I mean, Sir Lamarack is one of the noblest of the world, as Maori reminds us, so as Dinadin would be the very first to tell you, to lose to Sir Lamarack is no shame, right? However, um, to be, I mean, King Mark is emphatically humiliated. Even his effort, his attempt to be, like to pass as a regular knight, um, to be accepted as a peer of these other knights, um, is, uh, is, 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 we're invited to laugh at it, right? And Sir Dinadin, you know, Sir Dinadin the satirist can see it, right? You are not, uh, you know, Sir Lamarack says, you're, you're but a mean knight, right? You're, you're way out of your league, man, right? Uh, and that's, um, <laughs> yeah, Kareed, I bet his horse is embarrassed too. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, no, this is, um, Arthur sometimes gets beaten, but he can hold his own. King Mark cannot, right? He is a mean knight in more than one sense, right? Um, he is um, a low knight, low in skill level, right? Uh, not worthy to be, to be in company with the great knights, with the, those who are noblest in the world. Um, his skill points to his uh, he is a bad knight um think of how often we hear he is a passing good knight right and that's usually meant in more than one sense good in the sense of skilled right uh with his weapons um skilled in combat but also good right like he's 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 a good knight you know that guy's a good egg he's 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 d- deserving of worship king mark um, is earns himself great disworship. He is bad at being a knight in all ways that you can be bad at being a knight, Karita. That's exactly it. Um, so they start playing pranks on him. Sir Dinadin has already set this up, right? Um, King Mark asked Sir Dinadin who was the leader of this group of six uh, knights of King Arthur's that they met, and uh, Sir Dinadin has already lied to him. And told him that Sir Lancelot is the uh, uh, is the leader, uh, and he chooses one of their shields and says, "Oh yeah, no, like that guy, you know, that, that guy over there is Sir Lancelot, right? You can tell by his shield." Um, Rikso Sir Dinadin went from King Mark and went to his own fellowship, and so they mounted upon the horses and rode on their wise and talked of the Cornish knight. For Sir Dinadin told them that he was in the castle where they were lodged. It is well said, said Sir Grifflet, for here have I brought Sir Dagonet, King Arthur's fool. That is the best fellow and the merriest in the world. Will ye then do well? sighed Sir Dinadin. I have told the Cornish Knight that here is Sir Launcelot, and the Cornish Knight asked me what shield he bar, and I told him that he bar the psalm shield that Sir Mordred beareth. Will ye do well? said Sir Mordred. I am hurt and may not well bear up my shield nor harness. Therefore put my harness and my shield upon Sir Dagonet, and let him set upon the Cornish knight. That shall be done, said Dagonet, be my faith. And so anon Sir Dagonet was armed in Sir Mordred his harness and his shield, and he was set on a great horse and a spear in his hand. 
Now, said Sir Dagonet, set me to that knight, and I trow I shall bear him down. And of course, King Mark sees him coming and runs away, and Sir Dagonet is chasing after him and hamming it upright, and he's, you know, uh, uh, bellowing after him, saying that he's going to chase him down and kill him. Um, great fun, right? Just hilarious. This is uh, uh, one of Dagonet's great moments. I love Sir Dagonet is 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 really great. Uh, he had a hard time of it when he, as fool, met uh, uh, Tristram when Sir Tristram was running mad. Uh, right, they had a madman fool interchange. Right, uh, which didn't really go exactly like it did in King Lear. Um, but anyway, so you know, so he's coming to to further humiliate. Uh, the Cornish Knight. Notice the overall shape of the joke. I mean, the joke is, I mean, it is kind of funny, right? And and note how it originates with Sir Dinadin, and then Sir Griffith perks up and is like, hey, we've got Sir Dagonet here, right? He, he, he uh, improves on the jest. Um, but notice the shape of it, right? This is not just like some random practical joke uh, on somebody, you know, that they're using to kick somebody while he's down. Um, the message here is kind of clear, right? Let us show the gap between good knights and bad knights. You see what the pageant that they're playing out, right? It's like Sir Dagonet is to King Mark as Sir Lancelot is to anybody else, right? Um, from when it comes to King Mark, Sir Dagonet might as well be Sir Lancelot, right? Um, and the fact that they make that King Mark ends up running in fear away from King Arthur's fool, again, is, you know, this uh, very telling and very appropriate um, satire, right, on King Mark's status, both as a knight and, of course, in fact, like as a king uh, in his relative relationship uh, with King Arthur as well, right? Um, uh, Karina's wondering, are they picking on him because he's an easy easy target, or is there a little Cornish Knights or Losers thing, too? Yeah, I, there is a, a Cornish Knights or Losers thing, too. But remember, there's also, especially for Sir Dinadin, um, Sir Dinadin has traveled with Tristram. Um, at the beginning... Back in the days when Sir Tristram first encountered with Sir Bleoberis and Sir Blamartiganus, uh, you remember like when Sir Bleoberis comes to the court of Cornwall and, um, you know, walks off with Sir Seguarides' wife. Remember that? Um, back in those days when nobody in King Arthur's court knew Sir Tristram, um, the thing about Cornish knights was simply, simply, Cornish knights suck, right? I mean, Cornish knights are terrible knights, uh, and so... You know, um, uh, like they're barely even worth the notice. They're just not in the league, combat-wise, of Arthur's knights. Now, though, that, I mean, that's still out there. That Clearly, that association exists, though people now tactfully say the only Cornish knight who's worth anything is Sir Tristram. The rest of them are still losers. Um, but there's another edge to it, too. And again, especially from Sir Dinadin. Sir Dinadin condemns Cornish folks for King Mark's sake, right? It's not just because they're not Sir Tristram. Like, Sir Tristram alone stands out from among, you know, is the, he's, that he's the only Cornish knight worth taking seriously. That's kind of true, but it's not just that, right? Um, Tristram has been banished from Cornwall, right? The Cornish court kicked him out, 
And so therefore, there's extra, it's not just snobbishness now, right? It's not just not just being patronizing to Cornish knights in the modern sense. Um, they are uh, there is an air of of uh, condemnation now, right? Um, Cornish knights are deserving of scorn because of how they treated Tristram, right? Um, they rejected Tristram, the only knight of them who's worth anything, and they rejected him and cast him out. Especially, of course, with King Mark, obviously at the center of that. But I think in Dinadin's book, it seems fairly clear, others also bearing some responsibility for that. So I think it's not just a snobbish thing. I, I get that's still there. And I think with some knights more than others, it seems. But especially Sir Dinadin is... Um, uh, he's uh, he's a pretty big Sir Tristram apologist, so that's there's definitely more to it than that. But of course, there's one other thing about the scene that we can't we we should notice, right? Anything else conspicuous about the scene? Anything else jump out at you? What does this scene tell us about Sir Lancelot? Yeah, he's the best knight. Yeah, everybody's afraid of him. He's got a huge reputation. That's all very clear. But um, whose shield does Dinadin choose? Whose shield? Mordred's, right? Um, I told him that Sir Lancelot the Sam shield that Sir Mordred beareth. He describes Mordred's shield, Mordred's coat of arms, and ascribed that to Lancelot. Now, Dinadin's just joking, right? It's no big deal. Maybe he even noticed that Mordred was, maybe Dinadin, Dinadin's a smart guy, right? He's obviously fairly clever. Um, so maybe he's thinking a couple steps ahead. Maybe he's already thinking, you know, about dressing somebody up and whatever. I don't know. Um, maybe it was totally random. Maybe it was just by chance. And I don't think Sir Dinadin means anything by it. But we as readers can't help, I, I think we shouldn't help but notice it. It seems a little conspicuous. More, this is Mordred we're talking about. And we know Mordred's destiny. Merlin explained Mordred's destiny to us very clearly at the time, right? Mordred is the one who is going to cause the downfall of the Arthurian court. Mordred is the bad apple, right, who is going to, to rot the entire bushel. Um, we know this is Mordred's destiny. And of all of the knights of the court, of all of the knights there, it's Mordred that is, par that is paralleled with Lancelot. And that's interesting. I think that's interesting, right? Um, we get this slightly ominous piece of foreshadowing, right? Piece of dramatic irony. That Mordred should be the one chosen. That they should be kind of connected in some way. Um, it's a very small point here, right? But of course, as we're going to see, despite Merwin's prophecies that Mordred is going to be the one to bring down Arthur's court. It's still kind of true. Um, Mordred is going to be the one to, you know, smite Arthur, his deadly wound. Oops, spoilers, except wait, that's Merlin's job. Um, but it's going to be Lancelot that's going to bring down Arthur's court, really. 
were it not for Lancelot, Mordred would never be able to do what he's doing. So that I thought was a really interesting sort of moment here. Okay, so, sir, the joke comes to a sudden and unexpected end, right? When King Mark comes upon Sir Palamides, who sees King Mark, or who sees this one knight being pursued by another knight, who might be Bruce Sans Pitté for all he knows, right? So he goes to Sir Dagonet and, you know, completely pastes Sir, poor Sir Dagonet, right? Who's suddenly much less. Uh, uh, having much less fun all of a sudden. And then Sir Palamides unseats all six of the, takes all seven of them down in order, right? Joke over. And King Mark has, in a sense, the last laugh. Though, of course, uh, you know, the irony is essentially on Sir Palamides, who has just defended one of the people that he hates most in the world, right? Uh, King, you know, Tristram, he hates as a rival, uh, but King Mark, he despises, right? Um, and uh, he has just uh, just defended the life of the husband of the woman that he loves, right? Um, awkward. Anyway, Sir Palamides is now traveling with King Mark, and Sir Palamides sends King Mark's varlet uh, to this, ca- they come to this castle and he sends the varlet in to get some foodstuffs. Right? He, he's going to get some supplies, ask for supplies from this castle. Than the varlet went his way and come to the manor and saluted the lady and told her from whence he come. And once she understood that he come from the knife that followed the questing beast, which is how Palamides explained himself to the varlet, Ah, sweet Lord Jesus, she sighed. When shall I see that gentle knight, my dear son, Sir Palamides? Alas, will he not abide with me? And therewith she sooned and wept and mad passing great dole. But also soon as she meeked, she gaff the varlet meat, all that he axed. And then the varlet returned unto Sir Palamides, for he was a varlet of King Marcus. And as soon as he come, he told the knight his name was Sir Palamides. So, of course, Arthur, uh, Mark hadn't known uh, who was the knight who had rescued him until his varlet tells him here. Um, and in the meanwhile, we get this strange random moment where Sir Palamides comes to this castle, asks for supplies, and it turns out it's his mom who lives there. Right, and who swoons dead away out of grief that her son, whom she hasn't seen in goodness knows how long, um, is like right outside and won't come, will he not abide with me? Which he wants me to send him food out like into the field. What he won't he won't stay one night at his mom's place, right? Um, Nancy, I have no idea what Sir Palamides' mom is doing here. Uh, Sir Palamides not visiting his mom, who seems. You know, I don't know. She seems nice. <laughs> I don't know what Sir Palamides. I don't know what the backstory is there. Um, but yeah, like that, she's here. I don't get. And Nancy, the like, uh, um, and yes, Dolores Stroke. The, the, both Tomas and, and Dolores are thinking the same thing. Like that, what sweet Lord Jesus, really? So his mom's a Christian, uh, apparently, and not a Saracen, right? She's not a pain him the way that he is. So I. Did adult convert? She's already converted to Christianity, I guess, right? Presumably, she didn't. She's not a Christian woman who is, for some reason, raised her son a Saracen. I got it from his dad, Deborah. I have no idea. I mean, this moment 
does more to like throw more weirdness into Sir Palamides' backstory uh, than uh, any other. And um, and I got to tell you, like in the Sir Palamides feature film, I'm gonna have a hard time with this scene, right? It's gonna t- this one scene is gonna like this one paragraph is gonna require tons and tons of backstory development in order to explain why on earth this happens. Um, but uh, anyway, maybe Palamides converted to Islam in like as like a teenage rebellion thing. No, but he wouldn't call himself a Saracen then. He might be a Paynim, but he still wouldn't be. He wouldn't be a Saracen. I don't know, man. I don't even know. No idea. Um, can't explain this. <laughs> but, but it was interesting. Okay. Now, another thing that's interesting about Pal- Palamides, you may be forgiven if you have almost forgotten that Sir Palamides' initial issue was that he was in love with La Belle Isode, right? That came up once when he met up with Sir Cahydens and they got the Lonely Hearts Club thing uh, going, you know, and uh, uh, and were both of them commiserating about how hot they loved La Belle Isode. But, um, uh, but anyway, that's that's uh, uh, apart from that, we haven't gotten too much on that, right? We've uh, we've mostly had Sir Palamides fixated on Sir Tristram, not on La Belle Isode. So it's interesting. That we, um, um, it's interesting that we got, uh, we get this scene. Right, so as Sir Dinadon rode in the evening lot, he heard a doleful noise, as it were of a man. Then Sir Dinadon rode toward that noise, and when he come nigh that noise, he aleaked off his horse, and went near him on foot. Then was he ward of a knee that stood under a tree, and his horse tied by him and his helm off, and ever that knicked mad a doleful complaint, as ever mad a knicked, and always he complained of La Bellisode, the Queen of Cornwall, and sighed, Ah, fire laddie, why love I thee? For thou art firest of all other, and as yet showedest thou never love to me, nother bounty. Pardee, and yet alas, I m- must I love thee. And I may not blame thee, fire laddie, for mine iron cowsed me. And yet to love thee I am but a fool, for the best knight of the world loveth thee, and ye him again. That is Sir Tristram de Leones. And the falsest knight and king of the world is your husband, and the most coward and full of treason is your lord King Mark. And alas, so beauteous a laddie and perilous of all other shall be matched with the most villance knight of the world. Sir Palamides had almost seemed to move on from La Belle Isode, and again, and, and like what mattered to him was really his rivalry with Tristram. That clearly does matter to him uh, a very great deal. But it's interesting to be reminded that he's still in love with La Belle Isode, and this is still a love issue for him. And to see him making a semi-typical lover's lament. Um, if you look in uh, Vinaver's notes on this passage at the end, he doesn't write a whole lot of notes. Um, but uh, he writes, writes a little note on this passage which, in which he says, Here, um, uh, Mallory is following his French source, but he points out that Mallory has shortened it a great deal. That in the French source, which is a much, which much more focused on the courtly love angle, Palamides goes on for a long time 
like you do. I mean, courtly lovers drone on almost incessantly about their beloveds and about their love and all that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so... And this is something that you can see. I mean, you know, I've been trying, failing largely, but I've been trying not to talk too much about courtly love or use that phrase over much. Um, I mean, I have to use it sometimes because it's plainly lurking in the background here. But Mallory's work is not a courtly love work. It is at best a secondary interest in this story, right? Um, even as the knights talk about love a lot, they don't really do love talk the way that courtly love texts do love talk where it's all about it right it's i mean um more talk and less action is the medieval courtly love story mode right um and that's not what mallory is into that is, i think it's kind of a fun thing but yes oh i i do love that fact uh james and 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 nancy that uh of course we have Sir Dinadin overhearing this lament, but also King Mark on the other side of the of the of the clearing, right? Uh, also listening in on this. Um, so yeah, yeah, everyone's everyone's eavesdropping on on Palamides here, and King Mark books it right as soon as he hears this. One of the things that Palamides laments is how horrible and inappropriate it is that so beauteous a lady uh, and peerless of all other. The uh, similarity between peerless and um, and uh, uh, perilous is interesting, isn't it? Um, but um, anyhow, uh, so anyway, um, both of them are overhearing him. King Mark runs away. Um, oh, sorry, I was getting back to, Devra, your question. The most villains, knicked of the world. Um, villainous. Uh, uh, low, bad, immoral, uh, wicked knight of the world. Um, villains here would be like the opposite of... Uh, remember how uh, King Arthur said that Tristram was the gentlest knicked of the world? Vilaunce would be like the logical opposite of gentlest. Um, Mark and Tristram are absolute opposites of each other, and that's that's a um, that's a theme here. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, exactly. He's yeah, exactly. Uh, he is lamenting that so beauteous a lady should be matched with the most wicked knight in the world. It's just, it's just wrong. It's, just, it's not that she's married. That wouldn't be a problem. I mean, you know, necessarily. Everybody was fine with Sir Seguarides' wife, right? But, um, but yeah, that she should be married, like, it's just, it's horrible, right? And her boyfriend kicks my butt on the regular, so that's not so good either. We get to King Arthur's court. King Mark gets to King Arthur's court, and he has his trial by combat with Sir Amant. Right? Sir Amant appeals him anonymously of treason um, for murdering the other guy, which he totally did. Right? But Sir Amant loses. 
he's in the right, and he loses the trial by combat. Fawn was there damsels that La Belle Isoude had sent unto Sir Tristram, that knew Sir Amant well. Then by the license of King Arthur they went to him and spake with him, for while the truncheon of the spear stuck in his body, he spake. Ah, fair damsels, said Sir Amant, recommend me unto La Belle Isoude, and tell her that I am slain for the love of her and of Sir Tristram. And there he told the damsels how cowardly King Mark had slain him and Sir Bursilus, his fellow. And for that deed I appealed him of treason, and here am I slain in a righteous quarrel. And all was because Sir Bursilus and I would not consent by treason to slay the noble Knecht Sir Tristram. Then the twelve maidens cried aloud that all the court meeked here and sighed, Ah, sweet Jesu! that knowest all hid things. Why sufferest thou so false a traitor to vanquish and slay a true knight that fought in a righteous quarrel? This is a theological problem. Right now, remember, remember, I said before, the church has condemned trial by combat from the beginning, right? Um, we can see in their outcry the logic behind trial by combat, right? God knows all hidden things, right? God knows the truth of a cause. When two are two people are quarreling, God knows who's in the right and who's in the wrong, right? And so, since God knows what's in the right, surely he will make sure that justice is done and that the person who's in the right wins. It's a very simple line of thinking, right? But the church's problem was always the, the second. The first step is fine. Does God know who's right and who's wrong? Yes, God knows who's right and who's wrong. The second step is the problem, right? You cannot assume that God is going to make it turn out so that the truth is revealed in that moment, right? Um, as they said, to do that is to, uh, is to, is to you know, Jesus says to Satan in the temptation in the wilderness, you know, thou shalt not... Ten, you know, test the Lord thy God. That's that's exactly the text that the that that uh, the church quoted when they were condemning the the um, the practice of judicial combat. We've seen people practicing it, nevertheless. Right? It's obviously standard uh, in this world that we're reading here, but it's important for us to notice. There's not a whole lot riding on this trial, right? King Mark's not actually going to get away, nor is anybody going to emerge from this with the false impression that he's really an upstanding guy. So, um, apart from Sir Amant, who dies, um, there's no real consequences to this. And yet, Mallory has created this situation, has sort of planted this seed. You know what? Judicial combats don't always play out. Um, we see that there is still a, a very general belief in judicial combat, among the characters of this story, but that doesn't mean that judicial combat actually works all the time uh, in this text. Um, and we have, we, he, Mallory has given us a prominent example in which he goes way out of his way to emphasize Sir Amant was in a righteous quarrel and nevertheless he lost and died. That happens. And this whole system is very dubious. One of the clear consequences this is going to be important later. All right. Uh, this is a really minor scene, but this was classic Sir Dinadin. I just loved this. 
So on the morn, Sir Dinadin rode unto the court of King Arthur. He's on his own now. And by the way, as he rode, he saw where stood an arrant knight, and mad him ready for to just. Not so, said Sir Dinadin, for I have no will to just. With me shall ye just, said the knight, or that ye pass this way. Sir, whether ask you justice of love, other of hat? The knight answered and said, Wit you well, I ask it for love, not of hat. It my well be, sighed Sir Dinadin, but ye proffer me hard love when ye will just with me with an hard spear. But fair knight, said Sir Dinadin, sithen ye will just with me, meet with me in the court of King Arthur, and there I shall just with you. Well, said the knight, sithen ye will not just with me, I pray you tell me your name. Sir knight, my name is Sir Dinadin. Ah, sir, said the knight, full well know I you for a good knight and a gentle, and wit you well, sir, I love you heartily. Then shall there be no justice, said Sir Dinadin, betwixt us. So they departed. I just love the way David says, Sir Dinadin, the Socrates of Camelot. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is absolutely fantastic, right? Um, here we see Sir Dinadin. Carita, I am sure this is meant to be funny. I am sure this is meant to be funny. There are, I mean, we, we, we have to wonder, right? Sometimes we are amused by things that, you know, maybe Maori was perfectly serious about. Sir Dinadin is not one of those things, right? Sir Dinadin is hilarious. And I think that Maori finds Sir Dinadin hilarious. Um, and I think it's very interesting that Maori seems to find Sir Dinadin's, uh, uh, at the very least, deviation from the knightly code at times satire of the knightly code actually that he seems to find that funny right um it's very tempting sometimes to see sir thomas mallory's a very serious very earnest especially about knighthood right he's not going to mess around with knighthood except he does mess around with knighthood right enter sir dinadin um who is always going around you know plucking the the bubbles, right, of uh, uh, of other knights, um, you know, calling a spade a spade, and and uh, uh, you know, uh, accusing Sir Tristram of being a, a, a madman when he wants to go and attack thirty people on his own, um, and uh, yeah, the <laughs> the way that he talks his way out of this situation, and we never even learn who this other knight is, right? It doesn't matter. This is just Sir Dinadin performing here. Um, yeah, it's uh, his, <laughs> it's really, really wonderful. Um, but you'll notice one of the other sort of consequences here, right? Um, how counterintuitive it is. He, you know, the strange knight first meets Sir Dinadin, and his first impulse is to say, Before you pass, you must joust with me. And Sir Dinadin's like, No, really, I, I, I don't want to, right? In the end, he, the knight comes to the point where he asks Sir Dinadin what his name is, and Sir Dinadin tells him. And at which point he discovers, Oh, I don't want to fight you. I would never want to hurt you. I think you're great, right? What Sir Dinadin does not say explicitly, but seems to imply, is... 
Hey, Stoop, why didn't you ask me that question in the first place, right? What kind of sense does it make to live in a world where our first step is to fight each other and then find out who we are second, right? When, upon finding out who I am, you realize you didn't actually want to fight me in the first place. Well, what if you? Well, what if we just fought and then you'd found out after I was dead or something, right? Um, Again, Sir Dinadin, through his questions, through his actions, seems to not exactly turn the whole system on its head, but call it into question in some serious way. Like, people, can we please put a little common sense into this? Right. That's that's kind of Sir Dinadin's whole approach, the way that he um, sort of takes this at times sort of exaggerated, I think, even within the context of this world, exaggerated ethos. Right and say, come on, hang on, people. <laughs> Surely we can find a better way than this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Dolly says he really thought the knight was going to insist on the joust when he heard Sir Dinadin's name. Yeah, it's, that's the thing, Dolly, that I'm, that I'm suggesting that surprises me most, right, is that um, it's not just surprising that Sir Dinadin would voice this. It's that Mallory... Like, goes along with him, right? Um, Mallory makes it work out that Sir Dinadin is in the right to question what he's questioning, right? And that's that's um, uh, I think pretty cool. Okay, so. This is later on, though. Sir Lamorak has proven himself again, and everyone is uh, loving Sir Lamorak and admiring him, especially after he he foredoes the evil custom at that uh, castle that belongs to Morgan Le Fay uh, and, uh, uh, you know, overcomes many, many knights with his excellent jousting and then fights with Sir Palamides and uh, defeats him, too. Thon the king was glad, and so was all the fellowship of the Round Table except Sir Gawain and his brethren. And Juan they wist that it was Sir Lamorak, they had great despite of him, and were wonderly wroth with him that he had put him to such a dishonor that die. He's just uh, unhorsed Sir Gawain and Sir Gaheris earlier that day as well, so it's a sore point in particular. Then he called to him privily, this is Gawain, uh, in council, all his brethren, and to them said thus, Fire brethren, here may ye see, whom that we hat King Arthur loveth, and whom that we love he hateth. And wit you well, my fair brethren, that this Sir Lamorak will never love us, for because we slew his father, King Pellinor, for we deemed that he slew our father, King Lot of Orkney, and for the death of King Pellinor, Sir Lamorak did us a sham to our mother. Therefore I will be revenged. Sir, said Sir Gawain's brethren, let's see. Devise how ye will be revenged, and ye shall find us ready. Well, sighed Sir Gawain, hold ye still, and we shall espy our time. They're going to be revenged upon Sir Lamorak. Um, notice what Gawain half confesses. We killed, we slew his father, King Pellinor. Why? For we deemed that he slew our father. They believed that they 
that he, that King Pelinor killed King Watt. King Pelinor didn't kill King Watt. Sir Balin killed King Watt. Remember, he killed all eleven of those kings in one day, in battle. Um, yeah, Sir Balin the Savage killed King Watt, as Sir Lamorak knows full well. Um, It's the mindset of Sir Gawain and his brothers which is most disturbing here, right? And this is, again, as I referred to earlier, we can see kind of the lines drawing, right? Who are the good knights? Who are the bad knights? Um, the good knights are still complicatedly good, but the bad knights are getting worse. Whom we hate, King Arthur loves, and whom we love, he hates. I'm not sure whom they love that he hates, exactly, but it's clear whom they hate, whom he loves, right? Um, and there's there's a short list there, but Sir Lamorak is absolutely at the top of it. But notice another thing. Sir Gawain is wrong about two things. One is the murder uh, of his father, and he kind of, as I say, half admits he had been wrong about that. But... Um, what else is he wrong about? He doesn't even seem to be aware of the fact that he's wrong about this. Do you see what else he's wrong about? Look at his whole rationale, his whole mentality here. Sir Lamarack will never love us because we slew his father... For we deemed that he slew our father, and for the death of King Pellinor, Sir Lamorak did us a sham to our motor. Therefore, will, uh, I will be revenged. Uh, David, what was the shame to their mother? Um, he slept with their mother. That's what they're referring to. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. So, um, they're not wrong about that. That's true. That's true. Does Lamarack, uh, uh, is he having a paramours relationship with Queen Morgaz? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. That's not incorrect. And for the death of King Pelinor, Sir Lamarack did us a sham to our motor. Really? Is that how that went down? So Sir Lamorak bedded their mom out of vengeance to get back at them for killing his dad? Really? Is that what happened? That's not what happened. Is that Sir Lamorak? What, what have we seen of Sir Lamorak? As far as, not just his general character, but as far as Queen Morgaz is concerned. What have we seen with Lamarack and Morgoth? We haven't seen them interacting directly yet. But we have seen him talking about her. Remember the scene where he is fighting with Sir Meliagance, who's in love with Guinevere? About which one of their... Uh, which one of their beloveds is the most beautiful, and then Lancelot comes in and breaks up the fight and then ends up entering the fight with Sir Lamorak, right? Um, 
here's Lamarack literally going to toe to toe with Lancelot. And everybody, right? Remember Sir Bleoberus comes in and tries to be peacemaker as well? And all of them are like, hey, man, we all love our ladies and we all think our ladies are the most beautiful. Remember Sir Bleoberus is like, I have a lady and I think she's the most beautiful lady in the world. Are going to beat me up too, Lancelot? Um, the point is, did he just, like, sleep with Gawain's mom to get back at Gawain? No, he did not. He's like legitimately in love with Sir Gawain's mom. It's weird. It's a strange like cross-generational thing. Is it weird that his beloved is not only like a couple decades older than him, but also like the wife of the or like, you know, the mom of the people who killed his father. Like, yeah, it's complicated. It's weird. But he's not just he's not just doing it to spite Gawain. Takako, you're absolutely right. They are judging him by their standards. They don't get Lamarack at all. Um and they're setting out to perpetuate uh uh the violence to dig themselves in deeper. They were bad to kill, to murder King Pelinor, right? He was a great knight. Um, he was not guilty of the crime of which they, uh, they, they uh, accused him, and they killed him treacherously. Um, whoa, sorry. Um, they are, uh, what they are contemplating here is even worse. Um, Hold on to that for a second. Um, when um, uh, when King Mark is finally revealed and and rebuked by King Arthur, uh, you remember King Arthur makes Tristram and King Mark reconciled, right? He makes them swear oaths to get along and Mark to accept Tristram back and totally not try to kill him anymore. And uh, and he makes everything okay, right? So he's all pleased with himself. Lancelot is not pleased. Alas, sighed Sir Lancelot unto King Arthur, what have ye done? For ye shall lose the man most of, of most worship that ever come into your court. Sir, it was his own desire, said King Arthur, and therefore I make not do withal, for I have done all that I can and mad him at accord. Accord? sighed Sir Lancelot. Now fie on that accord, for ye shall hear that he shall destroy Sir Tristram, other put him into prison, for he is the most coward and the vile and the vilounced king and kneeked that is now living. And therewith Sir Launcelot departed and come to King Mark and sighed to him thus, Sir King, wit thee well, the good kneeked Sir Tristram shall go with thee. Beware, I read thee, of treason, for an thou mischief that kneeked, be any manner of falsehood or treason. By the fife I owe to God and the order of Knechthood, I shall slay thee, mine own Hondis. Lancelot is going to make this perfectly clear. So, several things are really interesting about this. It's not, I mean, Lancelot's, uh, you know, connection to Tristram, everything like that's, you know, fine. Um, but, um, uh, several implications of this scene. One, yes, Do Dolly 
Arthur does look kind of naive here, right? Um, Arthur's all pleased with him, so he thinks he's solved the problem, right? I made them swear oaths. I told them to go back home and be very, very good. And they said they would be good, and so all is well now, right? Um, and Lancelot doesn't buy it at all. And we know, and the narrator tells us, Lancelot is right and Arthur is wrong. Um, and Lancelot knows this. One thing, therefore, our first conclusion from this passage, Arthur is a bit of an idealist, right? Arthur wants to think that people are going to act like they're supposed to act, right? Um, I don't think he's just generally naive, right? I don't think he's... Um, I don't think he's just a sucker, exactly. The... But he does seem to have, I don't know, a higher opinion of his own authority, perhaps, than is real. I don't know. He seems to think that by him making them swear an oath before him to do this, obviously it's going to be done, right? Um, Lancelot suspects better. Um, Lancelot's actions are also interesting. His king has made Mark swear. This gives Arthur the right to enforce the oath of Mark, right? It should Mark contemplate treason against Tristram and King Arthur hear of it. He would have the right to go down at, you know, to rouse his vassals, come down to Tintagel like his father did before him, and rebuke King Mark, right? Lancelot doesn't seem to trust that, right? Or at least that's not enough for Lancelot. Nor does Lancelot come up and say, my king means it, right? Don't try him, man. No, he asserts his own authority. He adds his own authority to King Arthur's, right? So, the greatest king in all the land said, you better not do this. I am telling you that you better not do this because you better be personally afraid of me. I will personally come down and kill you with my own hands, right? Um, uh, as if the fear of Lancelot personally is a a greater motivator to King Mark than the threats of King Arthur. Now, on the one hand, we know that to be true. Remember, this is, I mean, when Lancelot comes after, rides, comes galloping after King Mark, chasing him down, saying, I'm going to slay you with my own hands, we should be remembering Sir Dagonet, right? Riding up uh in King Mark thinking it was Sir Lancelot saying, I'm going to slay thee, I'm going to slay thee, right? So we have a really funny recapitulation of that comical moment, from, except it's not comical anymore, right? Um, and although Arthur is being, or Lancelot here rather, is being calm and uh, rather than riding and shouting and stuff like Sir Dagonet did, um, he, uh, 
nevertheless, we do have a recapitulation there. We know how afraid of Lancelot King Mark is and should be. We know how outclassed King Mark is by even, you know, medium good knights, right? Um, Sir Lancelot, there's nothing he could do if Sir Lancelot chose to come after him. So again, it's not that Sir Lancelot's threat is, you know, bad or wrong, or and it certainly will be added incentive. But what does it say about Sir Lancelot that he feels the need to do this? Um, and Devra, it is hard to forget that. Um, it's hard to forget that shield of Morgan Le Fay's. Right, with the knights standing on the heads of the king and the queen, holding them in bondage and servage. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's he's not he's not crossed the line, right? Um, he's not crossed the line. This is not wrong for him to do. It's just interesting. It just we can see him on a certain path, right? He's not... Lines are important, and he hasn't crossed it yet, but we can see where the line is here. Um, really quickly, this is going to be important later on. Do, I think, two more. Uh, yes, two more slides, and then we'll be done. Um, Sir Percival has come to court. Sir Percival's awesome. Uh, Sir Percival is Lamorak's kid brother, right? And he comes, and he's clearly very young. Arthur agrees to make him a knight. Um, but even Arthur, remember, says, like, he, you know, he's not going to prove himself to be a good knight yet, right? And I think the implication, I, Percival is probably, like, 13 or something like that at this point. Um, but anyway, then at dinner, Juan the king was set at the table, and every knight after he was of prowess, the king commanded him, Percival, that is, to be set among mean connectors. So he, he's not, he doesn't get a seat at the big boys' table. Right? He has to sit, he has to sit at the kids' table with the mean knights. The, you know, the, remember those, the knights that Sir Balin was among, right? The, 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 the low class, um, you know, minor folks, uh, uh, you know, the, the red shirts of the Arthurian court, right? And so was Sir Percival set as the king commanded. Then was there a maiden in the queen's court that was come of high blood, and she was dumb, and never spoke word. Reached so, she come straight into the hall, and went unto Sir Percival, and took him by the hand, and sighed aloud, that the king and all the knictes might hear it. Arise, Sir Percival, the noble knict, and God is knict, and go with me. And so he did. And there she brought him to the raked side of the siege perilous, and sighed, Fire knicked, talk here thy siege, for that siege appertaineth to thee, and to none other. Right so she departed, and asked a priest, and as she was confessed and houseled, then she died. Then the king and all the court made great joy of Sir Percival. So we have a miraculous portent, right, that... Um, the damsel, the dumb, speaks, right? The dumb damsel who had never spoken a word uh, speaks, and she speaks prophetically, right? She, she, she greets Sir Percival, um, calling him not only a noble knight, but God's knight, 
and she calls him over and sits him down at the right hand of the siege perilous, which you may remember is the one siege upon which no one else has ever sat before. Um, and uh, because if anyone sits there except the one who is destined to sit there, he will die. Uh, that's why it's perilous. Um, but to the right of the siege perilous, am I remembering correctly? Wasn't that King Pelinor's seat? Is Sir Percival getting King Pelinor's seat? I kind of think he is getting his dad's old seat. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> Stephen, you're right. Then the damsel dies and there was much rejoicing. <laughs> you're right. Um, I love, uh, by the way, houseled is one of my, like, that's on my short list of favorite Middle English words. I love that. She was confessed and houseled. Then she died. Um, to be houseled, it means she was absolved. So she she took she, she, she's doing last rites here. She knows she's going to die. Uh, so she confesses, and then she's houseled. She she's absolved, and then she dies. Um, yeah. So um, uh, anyway, so a miracle, a miracle acknowledging. So Sir Percival has been acknowledged miraculously in this like semi messianic way. Right, uh, there are definitely messianic overtones to Percival's arrival here, um, but he is not uh, even seating at the right hand of the siege. Perilous is, you have to admit, slightly messianic. Um, uh, he is not, of course, the greatest knight to come. Um, uh, he's probably not worthy uh, to uh, untie the latchet of the shoes of uh, the one who is to come after him. But nevertheless, um, he's pretty important. You're right, Stephen. He's messianic, but he's not needlessly messianic. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah. So, okay, anyway. Well, Karita, you want to see a lady getting a raw deal? Gawain arranges for his mom and Sir Lamorak to be in the same place. And thus the trap is set. And for to mock an end of this matter, he sent unto her. And there betwixt them was a nicht assigned that Sir Lamorak should come to her. Thereof was war Sir Geheris, and rode forth the sam nicht, and whited upon Sir Lamorak. And then he sigh where, come, where he come, riding all armed, and where he leaked, and tied his horse to a privy postron, and so he went into a parlour, and unarmed him. And then he went unto the queen his bed, and she mad of him passing great joy, and he of her again, for either loved other passing sore. It's not a vengeance thing, right? They both love each other passing sore. They both love each other. This is a completely mutual relationship between this guy and their mom. Now notice, notice how Maori is building the suspense here. We know what Gawain and his brothers were plotting. Right, they are planning to kill Sir Lamorak, and oh boy, this sounds like everything is set. Right, they've lured him out to this place where he not only they not only spy him coming alone, right, and then they watch him unarm himself. Now he doesn't have his armor or his weapons with him. Right, clearly now is the time for them to spring their trap. 
So Juan Zergeheres saw his time. He come to their bed's side, all armed, with his sweared naked. Oh boy, here it comes. And suddenly he got his motor by the hair and struck off her head. Juan Sir Lamarack saw the blood dyshed upon him all hot, which was the blood that he loved passing well. Wit you well, he was sore abashed and dismayed of that dolorous seeked. And therewithal Sir Lamarack leapt out of the bed in his shirt as a knick dismayed, sighing thus, Ah, Sir Gaheris, knicked of the table round, foul and evil have you done, and to you great shame. Alas, why have ye slain your mother that bar you? For with more reek ye should have slain me. The offence hast thou done, said Sir Gaheris. Notwithstanding, a man is born to offer his service. But yet shouldest thou be war with whom thou meddlest, for thou hast put my brethren and me to a sham, and thy father slew our father, and thou to lie by our mother is too much sham for us to suffer. And as for thy father, King Pellinore, my brother Sir Gawain and I slew him. Ye did the more wrong, said Sir Lamarack, for my father slew not your father. It was Balin le Sauvage, as yet my father's death is not revenged. Okay, um, who, um, that sentence, uh, it seems everything seems to be going according to plan, right? My expectations, which I felt had been built by Maori in the early scenes, um, seems to be running its course, right? Until suddenly he got his motor by the hair and strake off her head. Uh, I'll never forget when I first read that sentence. I just sat there like... I can't believe what I just read. I was way more shocked even than Sir Lamarack was, right? Um, and the description, oh my goodness. The description of uh, uh, Morgaz's blood splashing onto Sir Lamarack, the, the heat of her blood, the blood of the woman that he loves, uh, 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 oh man, like the tactile image of feeling her blood splashing on him and his shock, right? Um, it's horrific. The scene is horrifying. Um, foul and evil have you done? I mean, and uh, his first words were almost exactly what I was thinking myself when I first read it. Sir Gaheris, Knight of the Table Round, like, Really? I, you know, killing another knight because you think he killed your relative is not great, right? The greatest knights don't do that kind of thing. Uh, they understand that, again, you know, as we said at the beginning, combat, contact sport. But um, uh, occupational hazard. Um, but it's understandable, you know. Even ganging up on a knight, that's not good. Right. But again, you know, it could be worse. That Geharis, Gawain's brother, would just come and, and would stop his uh, um, 
decide that the shame that their mother is being put to by Sir Lamorak needs to be stopped by decapitating his own mom is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing, right? I mean, obviously he is punishing her also, right? He blames her for this shame. Um, at what it first looked like, maybe a misunderstanding, that Sir Lamorak is using their mom um, for vengeance against them, in order to bring shame to them, um, to pay them back for killing his dad. Um, you might think, well, may, may, maybe it's a misunderstanding, right? They assume that that's how, what, why Lamorak is doing it, but they don't really get that it's mutual between the two of them. No, actually, they do seem to get that it's mutual between the two of them, and that would seem to be why Sir Harris decapitates her, right? Um, because they feel shamed by the actions of their mother, uh, and they do want to punish Sir Lamorak, but they don't just want to kill him, right? They want to kill his lady in his embrace so that her blood sprays all over his face, and he's left embracing her headless corpse in bed. That's the vengeance that Sir Gaharis plans against the punishment for his mother for bringing shame to them, and that's the vengeance that he plans against Sir Lamorak. That is horrifying. That is... The bad guys are getting worse, right? And Gaharis... Gaharis had been a, a pretty good guy, all things considered. Not obviously, you know, psychopathic or anything. Um, we had Sir Gareth, or Sir Gaharis quite a bit in this last section. We, he was traveling with Sir Dinadin for a little while. He was um, interacting with King Mark in, uh, in an appropriately unflattering way. Um, but, um, man, foul and evil has he done indeed. Those are those are harsh. It's not just done unknightly. It's not even just treason, right? He has shamed himself forever. He has done evil. He is way, way beyond crossed the line, right? Um, why have ye slain your mother that bear you? Like, he can't even process this, right? Um... And then the rationale that he gives, he's like, and it's not even true. Like, my dad didn't even kill your dad. You psychopaths are just after my family for no good reason. Oh, man. It's one thing to perpetuate the cycle of violence. It's another thing entirely to, like, it never really started. They started it. They started, this whole thing is a completely one-sided Vendetta between, you know, the Gawain family and the Pelinor family. All right. Well, with that pleasant scene, we're going to stop for tonight. We almost got uh, to the end there. That was pretty close. Um, you got a, a, a couple things left. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, look at that. We got everything, but uh, we only have two more slides. Two more slides. Okay. Yep. Um so we'll finish those up next time, and then we'll go on. So the 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 further reading schedule is posted on the website now, finally, belatedly. Um, so for next week, we're going to read up to, but not including, the story of Alexander the Orphan. 
Okay, so uh, we're going to be reading the uh, the section uh, which is no wait no no sorry we're starting with Alexander the orphan I'm sorry we're reading Alexander the, we just we just did read up to but not including Alexander the orphan sorry this is when I do too many reading assignments in one sitting no we're going to read the story of Alexander the orphan and then we're going to read the story uh, then we're going to read about the tournament at Surluse right so that's where we're that, that's where we're going and I just picked up Jonathan Strange which is totally not the right book wrong thick red book I just picked up. Um, yeah, so we're going to read uh, we're, we're going to read about Alexander the Orphan and the tournament at Surluse, but we're stopping at Joyous Guard. Okay, so we'll 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 we'll, we'll pick up at Joyous Guard after Christmas. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I agree, Karina. Sweet dreams, kids. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> with this pleasant thought, we'll we'll all head off to sleep. Um, Thanks, everybody. Oh, and Doerstruck is right. It's time to reset the days since last lady beheaded uh, to uh, <laughs> sign to zero. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Good night. We will be back next week, uh, and then we'll be off uh, for the holidays. But uh, I will look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. Good night. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.